third speaker is uh, Karthik S. Joshi. Now, Karthik Joshi is a research scholar whose interests are in the mathematics of quantum physics and specifically its applications in statistical processes. He has an MSc degree with teaching experience, teaching maths to BTEC and MTEC students at PES University, Bangalore. And the title of his paper is A, Critic, a Critique of uh, Sheldon Pollock's Views on Rasa. Thanks for your uh, kind words of introduction. So, <clears throat> uh, well, uh, the title of my uh, presentation would be Sheldon uh, Pollock's Thesis on Rasa, a Critical Overview. Alternatively, I could have also called it as uh, Reading Pollock Naively. Okay? You don't need to be really an expert to find out flaws in uh, Pollock's uh, uh, thesis, as I will, uh, as I uh, hope to demonstrate. So, so <clears throat> basically, I want to define what Rasa is. I mean, the in English, okay, this is this is all what it means. It means love, affection, feeling of love, pleasure, you know, hundred other things. So the main point to take here is that there is no one lexical equivalent in English for the word rasa. Okay, so if you say I will uh, really comprehend rasa using English, that might not even be possible because there is no vocabulary to even you know, comprehend it. So uh, moving on, so uh, approaches to rasa. So one can take a philosophical or an artistic perspective uh, to approach aesthetics, uh, of which rasa is central to. Okay. So for instance, uh, <coughs> sorry, I skipped the slide here. For instance, the uh, philosophical approach would be. Uh, <coughs> uh, I mean, there have been uh, uh, aesthetics has been approached even in the Vedas itself. For instance, uh, the word aramkriti appears in the Rigveda. Okay, which is uh, synonymous to the word Sanskriti, meaning well done. And also, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the, in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Lord Krishna says, Any, anything which is uh, splendorous and marvelous and of exquisite beauty is an aspect of me. And uh, <clears throat> uh, even in the Taittiriya Upanishad, uh, we have the very, fi uh, uh, very famous Rasovai Saha statement, which basically means that the rasa is eternal and all-pervading. Okay? And uh, from an artistic point of view, well, many people, I mean, I don't have to talk much about it because there are scholars here, uh, distinguished scholars here uh, practicing the trade. But then, <clears throat> uh, just to summarize, so uh, rasa was, uh, uh, it is generally accepted that uh, rasa can be traced back to Bharata, although many people contend that uh, it can be traced much before because of certain uh, verses uh, titled Anuvamsha in Natya Shastra itself. Uh, that means, uh, Anuvamsha means words which have cascaded through generations over time. <coughs> yeah, so these would be the. So I adopt the following uh, uh, approach to uh, counter Pollock's arguments. So I would want to recognize the context, interpret his arguments, because as, as the uh, speakers before me have mentioned, his language is not really conducive for pleasure reading. As, a, as such. <clears throat> and then I would like to draw infer, uh, inferences or an inference and provide a rebuttal. So, <clears throat> uh, sorry to have to uh, take you through these uh, 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 passages, but then this would be uh, on the origin of Rasa. Sheldon Pollock on the origin of Rasa. Pollock says, the, earlier, uh, the earliest evidence we have of Rasa, or at least a component of Rasa complex, rise, uh, lies in the story of the first poet and the creation of poetry. 
This was followed by a long period of intense analysis of formal structure of aesthetic object, beginning with foundational text of the discourse, the treatise on drama. But then, uh, so basically what he means to say is earliest evidence, a hint of rasa is to Valmiki, no prayer. Okay, and then uh, the first poet story here is, uh, we, we know this uh, story where it is said that uh, Valmiki uttered the first verse when he saw, <clears throat> uh, when, he was uh, when he was grieving upon seeing a bird being shot by a hunter, right? Um, well, a rebuttal uh, for that would be the following. So there is a mention of Navarasas in the Ramayana itself. So uh, I think the, uh, this is not the updated presentation. I had the verse in the updated presentation, uh, nonetheless. <clears throat> so basically, uh, Lava and Kusha, while uh, expounding the tales of Bharata, uh, sorry, Rama, uh, 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 Valmiki writes that they used all the nine rasas. Uh, so uh, I think it's in the Balakhanda. Uh, that's the, that would be the ninth verse in the fourth, uh, yeah, the fourth sarga of Balakhanda. So. <clears throat> Yeah, as I was uh, telling earlier, uh, people like PV, uh, scholars like uh, P.V. Kane did contend that uh, there is a rasa theory prior to Bharata and was passed on to Bharata. So, <clears throat> Pollock now says, uh, we have also witnessed him confessing in the video, the same thing, but uh, there were separate cultural domains of poetry, Kavya, drama, uh, drama, which is Natya, music, which is Sangeeta, uh, consisting of vocal and instrumental music and dance, and less carefully thematized practices with terminology also less settled, including painting, uh, chitra, sculpture, architecture, and the crafts, which could include many of the preceding when that was deemed necessary. Well, uh, what does he mean to say? So he means to say that the Indian system envisaged only disjoint spheres of arts like poetry, drama, <clears throat> music, etc. There is there is no uh, you know there is no for instance uh, he what he means to say is there there is no music in drama or there is no dance in drama things like that. And then uh, he also says it's it also provided for no common underlying paradigm in which all these forms can be dealt with. And then uh, he adds he adds in the same breath you should uh, if you will, would have noticed that there there is no single word there is no there is no common term at all. And then he says. And the craft kala, which could include many of the preceding when it was deemed necessary. So in the same breath, he's saying one thing cannot happen with, uh, I mean, there's no common term at all. And then he's saying, well, here's a common term. Okay. So <clears throat> uh, kala actually in, uh, inclusively refers to all arts. Uh, for instance, if you look at the usage of the word kala itself, the word kalavat, okay, means a word who is well-words in the arts. Otherwise, you should have, we should have had words only for a pers person who is expert in, in a particular dance form or in a particular form of music. But then we have a very generic uh, term here called Kalavat. Okay? For instance, Krishna is believed to be an expert on Chatushashti Kala forms. Okay? Um, <clears throat> Pollock says, well, there is now widespread uh, agreement that the origin of what we recognize as Western aesthetics has something centrally to do with the coming of Western modernity. In eyes of Max Weber, the leading exegete of that uh, historical rupture, art in pre-modernity uh, everywhere was completely subordinated to the religious sphere only, only with the growth of rationalization of life that defines modernity. 
Well, so he's meaning to say that Western aesthetics was born with Western modernity. And uh, he basically shoots over the shoulders of Max Weber, stating that aesthetics before the advent of Western modernity in all places was limited to religious fears only. And uh, <clears throat> many, many non-philosophical works, uh, many works which have no philosophical undertones whatsoever can be found. Uh, for instance, Gatha Saptashati, which is dated uh, to 200 BCE, BCE and uh, 200 CE, is a, uh, yeah. So, is a collection of about 700 verses solely based on Shingara. Okay, and then Muchakatika also serves as another example. Uh, this work is based on Shingara and Hasya. And <clears throat> Pollock says the poet's emotion becomes a vestigial question found only in type of literature containing not rasa, but only emotion, given that the feelings involved, desire for God, for example, are excluded by the canonical definition of rasa, and hence can never develop into it. So, <clears throat> what he basically uh, seems to say is, work that contains only emotion cannot contain rasa, as it would contradict the canonical definition of rasa, and the poet's uh, emotion does not matter at all. So, <clears throat> Uh, to, uh, to rebut his argument, we go back to the Rasa Sutra, uh, which basically says that Rasa is produced by a combination of determinants, consequences, and evanescent emotions. So, uh, there might be many moods which, uh, the, which a particular uh, work of art may instill, but the, but the one which stabilizes and stays on, uh, which, uh, which becomes a permanent mood, would be the Rasa. Dominant, uh, I mean, uh, dominant emotion. Okay, the sthayi bhava would be the rasa, and would it would in, uh, induce the rasa experience. <clears throat> An artist experiences emotion <clears throat> while creating art; hence, experiences rasa. So this is quite, kind of obvious. So uh, if you tell me that uh, a, a poet or a dramatist is is a, is like a machine uh, without experiencing any any emotion while creating art, that it simply is outright absurd and illogical. They are people after all. And then, <clears throat> art is not experiencing rasa, rasa implies extracting more information than is. And this is one uh, open question I'll uh, uh, leave to the audience. So, uh, this is like saying, I have, I have written a two-page document, but then when I copy it or transfer it to somebody over email, let's say, he re receives a ten-page uh, document with more information in it. It would be akin to that. Okay. So, uh, from a, uh, this is also uh, interesting from an information theory point of view um, as well. So, <clears throat> the final ingredient for the manifestation of uh, rasa in the work as a whole, be it a drama or whatever, is the measured use of figures of speech. However, great uh, may be the poet's talents for them. For a talented poet can sometimes become so involved in composing figures that he produces his composition without any regard to the position of rasa. I offer this advice because we actually do find poets so filled with rasa of creating figures that they completely disregard the basic rasa of their composition. So, I mean, uh, this is very, very mystic and uh, probably even self-contradictory. So, <clears throat> basically he means to say that an artist might get too engrossed in the creation of rasa, so much so that he might completely disregard rasa. Well, <clears throat> this state of being too engrossed itself is rasa anubhava or experience of rasa. 
I'm sure uh, any artist worth uh, his or her salt will be able to uh, stand and second me on this. <clears throat> uh, an example would be a musician uh, who would be so engrossed that he does not care for uh, the music at all. It comes naturally. I think the technical term for it is manodharma. <clears throat> and pretty much rules are internalized in this state. It's so in me that I don't have to put a conscious effort uh, to bring it out. <clears throat> Pollock says, why should taste have become the preeminent metaphor for understanding aesthetic experience and response in classical India? Uh, curiously, this is something our authorities never care to argue on, philo on philosophical grounds. Well, Indian, uh, he means to say Indian scholars never presented an argument as to why rasa is central to understanding Indi Indian idea of aesthetics. So, as, I've, uh, as I did discuss before, rasa does get a philosophical treatment. So, rasa becomes central and it leads to Satchidananda, the eternal state, uh, eternal bliss, okay, and the ultimate reality. And <clears throat> incidentally, what, uh, what is also uh, very fascinating is many schools of Indian thought have, uh, have uh, discussed some amount of aesthetics and all of them seem to have to agree on one point, that it does... Uh, lead to Satchidananda. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, Pollock further says, I understand rasa as a historical form of thought. However, as I try to enable the reader of this reader to do, is to confront a theory clearly con contingent on a modern worldview and understanding of literary art. So, <clears throat> uh, basically he's trying to say that comprehending Indian aesthetics will require a non-modern worldview. Okay. So, <clears throat> Or in other words, uh, rasa is primitive. Rasa is, uh, the rasa theory is crude and primitive. Okay? So, <clears throat> I thought I'll give back uh, uh, to him in his own language using Western logic. So, uh, what we can do is we can construct a set of emotions. Okay? And then we define basis emotions. Okay? Emotions on which uh, you can, uh, these are basically emotions which support all other shades of emotions. Okay? And then, <clears throat> for instance, Navarasas form a basis set. Okay, this is time tested. This is all empirical. Okay. <clears throat> and then, what I can do is uh, basically have a mapping from a from a work of art to a rasa, or or uh, this would be an array of emotion as I will show later. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, a the A's of eyes here stand for artworks. Okay, and R of eyes here uh, stand for a vector of emotions, if you will. So, uh, what is that? Well, in general, you can have any Ri of this form, some coefficient times some emotion, okay? Uh, <clears throat> and Ais generally belong to this, uh, uh, you know, it's between 0 and 1, and uh, it should also be normalized, obviously. Uh, otherwise, I don't know how to interpret, for instance, 300 units of rasa, of, you know, uh, hasya or something. Okay? I, uh, so, this basically inbuilts, uh, builds in, uh, the concept of percentage, or you know, relative rasa kind of thing, this normalization condition, and then R map maps artworks to uh, you know combination uh, convex combination of basis vectors. I mean, yeah. So as I've uh, explained earlier, it's a convex combination. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> rasa would be the emotion with the highest coefficient. So here you have many AIs, right? So uh, the largest AI, okay. Uh, the emotion corresponding to the largest coefficient would be the dominant emotion and hence would be the rasa. So, <clears throat> I can form a rasa theory from this. Uh, 
yeah, my first axiom in the theory would be the operation plus here is the incoherent addition. Okay, just like you can imagine uh, if you know vectors. So you have co different components of a vector, vectors, and uh, emo the basis emotions here, are, okay, are like those components. And I use plus here to uh, denote incoherent addition. Okay, and uh, axiom two is every emotion and hence rasa can be represented in an elementary fashion. What I mean to say by elementary here is uh, that you can represent it always using this form. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to uh, prove a theorem here. Uh, uncomputable rasas exist. For example, there are uh, rasas for which you cannot compute these coefficients. Okay. And uh, the proof is very simple. In fact, it's a one-line proof. Number of rasas are greater than the number of Turing machines. So imagine there is a computer okay, to compute rasa. Okay, there you can only have countable number of such computers, uh, countably infinite number of such computers, even if you were to build an infinite number of computers. Okay, but RAS, these are real numbers, the coefficient here are real numbers, they belong to a higher cardinality. Okay, uh, while uh, the number of Turing machines belong to Aleph naught, the coefficient of the uh, RASAs belong to Aleph one, okay, the real uh, cardinality of the continuum. And uh, hence, even for every rasa you, uh, you uh, dedicate a computer, you will not simply have enough computer to compute all the rasas. So uncomputable rasas exist. Rasa theory is not complete. Okay? So uh, basically, <coughs> assume that rasa theory is complete. Hence, every rasa must have an elementary representation. But this is, uh, uh, you know, this is uh, contrary to the theorem I just proved, that uncomputable rasa, uh, rasas exist. Therefore, our assumption that rasa theory is complete is wrong. So why am I telling you all this? Because this is one form of girdle, this is a girdle-like theorem in rasa. So basically, what uh, girdle theorem says is that if you have a, a effective, uh, complete, and a rich theory, it, it is bound to have certain incompleteness. Okay, and all the, this is basically an incomplete. Uh, completeness is what I'm proving. Okay, uh, so basically, uh, this can only hold if a theory is as sophisticated as number theory or arithmetic. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, I will <clears throat> rest my case here. I leave it to the audience to uh, decipher if rasa theory is actually primitive or not. Okay, um, <clears throat> and then so in summary, we just reviewed rasa theory. We showed Pollock's works uh, prima facie warrants. A closer examination. We also showed that uh, uh, we developed rather a framework to approach rasa theory from modern logic point of view, and showed that it's not primitive in any any sense <coughs> of the word primitive. Okay. To help me, you can do two things. You can go to the subscribe button on my YouTube and subscribe. We need more subscribers there. Uh, secondly, I get lots of emails on people saying, "How do we donate? How can we help you?" Uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com. And you can hit the donate button. You can donate in dollars. There are different ways mentioned. If you want to donate in rupees, there is a column called uh, Infinity Foundation India. And you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in India.